Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Um, tonight, I want to um, share a sutta with you, one of my favorite suttas, the Angulimala Sutta. Um, and um, I'm, the subtitle is Forgiver, Forgiving the Unforgivable. Um, and I know that Eve talked about forgiveness recently, but um, this will be forgiveness part two. Uh, and uh, Eve is here, Eve Decker is here to start us off with a song. So um, Eve, why don't you uh, share a song with us? Great. Thank you, James. Um, this song is titled Forgiveness. It's written by Helen Greenspan. Helen um, writes and sings for the Threshold Choirs, choirs of predominantly women who sing at the bedsides of the dying. And um, very often when people are dying, forgiveness comes up as um, something that people feel a longing for. So we can learn there's a lot of wisdom that can be taken from those who are, you know, moving across the veil. And this is one of them that forgiveness becomes very important for many people. And so because of that, Helen wrote this song. It's quite short, so I'm gonna sing it through twice for you. For all I leave imperfectly, I sing forgiveness for hurts unhealed, love unrevealed, for all that remains unfinished. I wrap it in mercy and hold it in peace and sing forgiveness. Forgive Thanks, Eve. <clears throat> so the Angulimala Sutta, and I'll put Angulimala's name in the chat box. And it is Majina, Majima Nakaya number 86 for those who like to go to the source it's in these um, 
this anthology, the middle-length discourses of the Buddha, uh, 152 of them, and this is number 86. I've been going through a few discourses um, in recent times. Um, we did three on uh, the uh, different ways of working with thought. Uh, we did number 18, 19, and 20, and I thought I'd uh, skip to a, a favorite sutta, this Angulimala Sutta. Let me get it open here, too. So Angulimala, it's a pretty, um, it's a very uh, well-known um, discourse and figure in uh, in Southeast Asia in the Theravadan tradition. And I'll give you the background of the story and then share a bit from the sutta. So Angulimala, the story um, takes place, uh, it starts, uh, it is in the time of the Buddha, uh, when uh, Angulimala was born, um, he wasn't born with it, uh, wasn't given the name Angulimala until um, much later. Uh, he was born, uh, his father was the, uh, a, held a post, a, chaplain's, a chaplaincy post in uh, King uh, Pasanadi's um, uh, realm and uh, but it was prophesied when he was born the star that he was born on and they did astrology uh, in those days uh, and the uh, the star that he was born on or the configuration that he was born uh, was a sign that said that he uh, would have perhaps violent tendencies and his father uh, wanting to um, wanting to counteract that see if he could prevent those tendencies from coming to fruition named him ahimsaka you might know that that uh, that word ahimsa in um, in Indian uh, in Hindu Ahimsa, which is usually thought of as nonviolence uh, or uh, peacefulness. Gandhi was a, uh, a, a someone associated with Ahimsa. Um, in order to uh, uh, in order to have him take on an identity, Ahimsaka was called really means the harmless one. And uh, he was a good kid. He was very strong, very big, very intelligent, and very well behaved in the first part of his life. And his parents thought, oh, great. I think we, we figured that one out and maybe uh, dodged a bullet, as, as one could say. And uh, they sent him, he was such a good kid, they sent him to um, a famous university in ancient uh, India, Takasila University, where he studied with one of the best teachers there. And he was a really great student, so good that 
his teacher really loved him and took him under his wing and he would bring him to his family's house and they'd feed him. Uh, he and his wife uh, would, would take really good care of him. And as sometimes can happen, um, his classmates got very jealous. And they said, why is he getting all this attention? He's, he's the teacher's pet and this doesn't feel right. So they decided to plot against him. Now I'm going to share this story. You can take it however literal or metaphorical as you like, because there's a few stretches to the, to the story, stretches for the imagination. Anyway, they plotted against him uh, in, by telling his teacher stories that first they said Ahimsaka was plotting against the teacher. And the teacher said, no way. Uh, uh, get out of here. You're, you're a miserable lot. I don't believe you. They did it a second time. And again, I don't believe any of this. And then they, um, they really poisoned him and they said, he is having an affair with your wife. And somehow this hit a nerve and got through to the teacher. And finally he believed them and he felt completely betrayed and so he decided he needed to um, plot against his student and create uh, some uh, major uh, problems for him by when he graduated more than major when he graduated He's the, the teacher said, you have to fulfill as is custom, you have to fulfill the teacher's wish in order to get full uh, conferring of your, uh, your degree. And Ahimsaka said, okay, tell me what it is. Now this is where your mind might stretch a bit because the teacher said, you have to to show your loyalty and your devotion and appreciation for my teaching, you have to give me the finger off the right hand of a thousand people. Meaning you have to kill a thousand people for me. And each time you kill somebody, take off their finger and you, you come back with a thousand fingers. Uh, at first, the student couldn't believe what he was hearing, but being a devoted student, and it said some latent, those latent tendencies of violence uh, awoke, awakened in him. And he said, okay, I will do my task and I'll come back when I have a thousand fingers. Now he was a very strong, um, intimidating, daunting figure. And those tendencies came to fruition and he set on, out on his task. Let me see. I'll, I'll read a little from, um, this is a, a, another book. This is by Bhikkhu Bodhi also, who translated the Majjhima Nikaya. This is called 
great disciples of the Buddha. And here's the uh, Anguli Mala story. I'll just read a little bit. Um, so in his final response to his teacher's demand, Ahimsaka did not even think of the alternative to gather the fingers from corpses thrown into India's open charnel grounds. Instead, he equipped himself with a set of weapons, including a large sword, and went into the wild Jalini forest in his home state, Kosala. There he lived on a high cliff where he could observe the road below, and when he saw travelers approaching, he hurried down, slew them, and took one finger from each of his victims. First, he hung the fingers on a tree where birds ate the flesh, and dropped the bones. But when he saw that the bones were rotting on the ground, he threaded the finger bones and wore them as a garland. And that is how he received the nickname Anguli Mala. Anguli means finger, and Mala, you might recognize from Mala beads, is a necklace or a garland, you know, sometimes of Tulsi beads, and you do uh, uh, do mantra using mala beads. I'm sure most of you have seen that. So he became known as Anguli Mala because he wore this necklace with all the fingers of the people that he killed. Fast forward, he's the scourge of the land and has killed and taken on his necklace 999 fingers. So he's just about to go for the thousandth. As I say, you can take this on whatever level. It's a little bit of a stretch that somebody could wear a thousand fingers uh, and kill a thousand people, but here's the story. And he's about to go for his thousandth, about to complete the mission. His mother, finally, after all this time, intuits, she lives in a, a, another uh, a far away, but she hears about this uh, Angulimala and she intuits, I think that might be my son. She didn't know for sure, but she's going and to see if it's, if it's him, I'm going to talk him out of this. <clears throat> it's too bad that she might not have, she could have done this a little bit earlier, but there she was on the 999th one and ready to talk him out of any more violence. The Buddha, who is not that far away, something like, I think, uh, uh, 10 miles away or so, or no, uh, 30 miles away, senses that she's on her way to try to talk him out of killing. And he, the Buddha says to himself, if he kills his mother, uh, matricide is an irreversible uh, immediate trip to the hell realms with no way of ever uh, moving higher on the in the different realms. 
And he also, through his supernormal um, powers, senses that Angulimala actually has some capacity for deep practice. So he goes to Angulimala and tries to um, uh, intervene or reach before the, his, his mother can get to him. And meanwhile, people uh, see the Buddha and they say, where are you going? And he says, oh, I'm going into the forest over there, the Jalini forest. And they say, don't go there. It's dangerous. Angulimala lives there. And a number of times he's on his trip and they're saying, no, 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 no. Go anywhere but there. Don't go there. He says, I'm going there. A lot of confidence the Buddha has. And he gets finally to Angulimala before his mother. And Angulimala sees this monk all by himself. And he says, oh, great. I've got my thousandth right in my, in my grasp. He says, I've, I've gone through, you know, five at a time or 10 at a time. No problem. I've got one guy and he's a, a monk. This is going to be easy. But then the Buddha does this psychic power. What do they call it? Jedi trick. Um, where the Buddha is walking and Angulimala is running now after him and the Buddha is walking slowly. And no matter how fast Angulimala is running, he can't catch him. This goes on for a while and Angulimala is saying, I, I, can, I can track down uh, uh, animals. I can track down horses. Nobody can out outrun me. And here this guy is walking slowly and I can't catch him. And finally, out of desperation, and here's where I'll, I'll read from the sutta. Angulimala shouts to him. <clears throat> then the, uh, the bandit Angulimala addressed the Blessed One in the stanza thus. While you're walking recluse, Oh, the Buddha, the Buddha says, stop. Wait, hold on a second. Let me, ja, 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 yeah. How amazing. This is amazing. I could catch up with any swift animal and I can't even catch up with this, this recluse. Stop, stop recluse, stop. And then the Buddha turns to him and he says, I've stopped Angulimala. You stop now too. And then Angulimala thinks, th these, these recluses, they speak the truth, they assert the truth, but this recluse is still recluse is still walking. And he says, I've stopped, Angulimala, you stop too. Suppose I question this recluse. And then the blessed one says, while you're walking, while you are walking, recluse. Oh, sorry, this is Angulimala speaking. While you are walking, you tell me you have stopped, but now when I've stopped, you say I've not stopped. I ask you now about the meaning. How is it that you've stopped and I have not? And then the Buddha says, Angulimala, I've stopped forever. 
I abstain from violence towards living beings, but you have no restraint towards things that live. That is why I have stopped and you have not. And with these words and the power of his purity, he breaks the spell and Angulimala, it's like coming out of the dream. He's so moved by the Buddha's presence that he stops and he, say, and he says, oh my goodness, I've never been in a presence like this before. This is me paraphrasing. And, and he says, oh, what, have I been, what have I been lost in? Can you help me? And with that, the Buddha says, come bhikkhu, which is his way of saying, you can ordain with me. And he ordained, and, and Angulimala is so transformed that he says, I will ordain, thank you so much. What do I do now? And then he teaches him, he teaches Angulimala the practice and he becomes a monk. But he is also feared throughout the land. And the people are not happy that this killer has all of a sudden become a monk and seems like he's gotten out of his out of his um, uh, commitment, out of his justice uh, for, for his crimes. But the Buddha takes him in anyway. When Angulimala goes for alms rounds, people throw stones at him and dirt at him and sticks at, at him and say, um, you are that former murderer, you don't deserve any food. And Angulimala says to the Buddha, um, I, they're not feeding me and they're throwing stones at me. You know, what do I do? And the Buddha says in lines that have been very meaningful to me, he says, bear it nobly, Brahman. Bear it nobly. You are working off your karma in this lifetime so you don't have to pay for it in other lifetimes. And by the way, after this, after Angulimala, the Buddha made um, a rule that did not allow bandits and robbers and thieves to, uh, to enter the monastery like that. But Angulimala did get in. Anyway, the story continues, and this is the, the important part of the story. So Angulimala keeps practicing and is going getting into his practice but it's very hard for him to concentrate and you might know this from your own practice if you've done some uh some deeds in the past that you've regretted they often come up on retreat i've replayed my whole as much as i can remember uh life in memories of all the things that I've done that have weighed in my heart and in my mind. And that's part of the healing process to actually remember everything that you've done. 
So he's having a hard time with his practice. And then something happens that frees him and purifies him in his heart. One day he's coming back from alms round and he sees this woman in childbirth and she's having a very difficult childbirth. It says in the, in the sutta that uh, the baby was deformed, but I've read in other, uh, other places that it was like a breach birth and she was having difficulty with the birth. And Angulimala uh, is, uh, is really distraught and he goes to the Buddha and he says, um, this woman is having a very difficult child, childbirth. We need to send somebody to, um, to help with the birth, some doctor or, or some healer who, who knows how to help her. And then the Buddha says this, he says, mm, Angulimala, you go to Savati and say to that woman, sister, since I was born, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. And by this truth, may you be well and may your infant be well. Angulimala says, um, Venerable Sir, are you forgetting who I am? I'll just read this, the sutta. Wouldn't I be telling a deliberate lie? For I have intentionally deprived many living beings of life. And then the Buddha says, Then Angulimala, you go to her and say to that woman, Sister, since I was born with the noble birth, since I was born with the noble birth, I do not recall that I've ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. And by this truth, may you be well, and may your infant be well. And he's saying, since I was born of the noble birth, since I took on robes and left the world, the life of worldlings and became a monastic, I am now in my noble chapter of my life. And he recites, he goes to the woman and recites this prayer and as good stories go, the woman uh, gives birth to the child and they're both well and healed. Not only are they healed, but Angulimala sees that he has enough purity to be able to heal this woman and give a healthy birth. And from then on, his meditation practice progressed very quickly. And eventually, even though he is a serial killer in his former life, 
he becomes a fully enlightened being. And the Angulimala chant that the Buddha told him to recite is chanted throughout Southeast Asia when women are giving birth. They are chanting the Angulimala chant by the virtue of, of my actions. They do the whole Angulimala chant as a protection for their birth. Quite a turnaround, isn't it? And then there's a whole recitation about how uh, he has been transformed. So when I first heard the story, you know, not only did it stretch me and say, oh, come on, and uh, th this can't, can't be, but it also made me, it hit me in a deeper way that said, oh, don't give up on anyone. That there is a possibility for anyone to be redeemed and see the light. And these days, there is a lot of opportunity to practice that kind of an open heart and an open mind. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about how we can open our hearts to the unforgivable. And first to understand that when we are holding anger and bitterness, it is we who are suffering and contracted and poisoned. And I, I came across a story today that really moved me uh, that perhaps you can relate to of uh, Wayne Dyer. You might know Wayne Dyer. He was a wonderful um, spiritual teacher. And he tells the story about forgiving his father who um, left him right after he was born and uh, was, uh, was an awful, uh, was not in his life and his, his mother had a really hard time and how he had harbored hatred for his father his whole life. And this is his story, his version of this transformation. He tells a story about how his father, who was named Melvin Lyle Dyer, uh, Dyer um, left when he was a baby and Wayne Dyer never met him. And his dad had two older brothers and a mother. And when the mother came home from the hospital, she was left with, uh, with the babies after a few weeks. He was an alcoholic and he wasn't a good father when he was being a father to his brothers, but, uh, but Wayne never, never met him. And as he grew older and was a teenager and young man, he had a lot of anger and resentment toward his father. He said that he used to have nightmares about him, nightmares where he'd been strangling him or beating him up or screaming at him and demanding, please, why did you leave me? 
demanding an explanation. Why didn't you ever care to know that you had a son, Wayne? And this tormented him for a lot of his life. When he was in his 30s, yes, when he was in his early 30s, he was, um, and he and he thought his father was still alive for a period of time, and he decided to try to find him, but he was never able to find him. He even went to his grandmother's funeral thinking, oh, my father won't miss his own mother's funeral, but he didn't show up, and he was never able to find him. Then when he was in his 30s, he found out that his father was buried in Biloxi, Mississippi, and that he actually had a grave, and he hadn't known. But then he took a job, a work opportunity in Mississippi, and he decided he was going to go down there and do something. And there was, as he said, uh, uh, he goes on to say that he visits, and this is the story. He says he goes to find his father's grave, and eventually he gets there. His intention is to literally piss on his father's grave. He's angry. He wants to get all this anger out. This is his daughter speaking on this podcast and yell and scream at him and condemn him for leaving. How could you do that to a, to some to us at that time? It's not so easy for my mother to support their children and three children and so on. And he does that and he gets angry and he yells at him for an hour or two and whatever. And then he declares, okay, now I'm going to leave. And as he's walking away from his father's grave, he said that something calls him back, something bigger than him, and says, no, you need to go back. You can't leave it at this. So he turned around and he walked back to the grave and a feeling of overwhelming presence, feeling of love just took over his body. He started crying deeply. Tears were coming down his face and it came out of nowhere. He went from having nothing but anger towards this man to all of a sudden having this loving, loving presence, just like sort of enveloping him. He felt called to forgive his dad in that moment, and he did. And he said out loud, Dad, I forgive you. And he said, from this moment forward, I send you nothing but love. He said that he eventually left and he carried that feeling of love and forgiveness with him and that his whole life changed from that point. His career started to take off. He wrote his first book. He got into a healthier marriage and on and on. That date that he went to his father's grave, he says in his book, in his own words, if you were to ask me the most significant day of my life and experience of my life, it is the events that took place on August 30th, 1967. I've seen this for myself um, so many times on retreats where people who have been harboring a lifetime of pain and hatred, justifiable, completely justifiable, somehow 
their heart opened and it was a turning point in their life. I know that that's been so for me when I've harbored um, ill will and hatred. And I had some stuff in my own life that when I had some forgiveness, something really shifted and opened for me. We have meta for the difficult in meta practice. How can you wish well for people who've hurt you? This is the practice in the, in the classical meta practice. You go from yourself and benefactor to a loved one, to a neutral person, to, uh, to a, um, the difficult, and then all beings. How can you wish well for them? And the way that it's understood is that if you wish them real happiness, true happiness, they will no longer harm another. They will no longer be hurtful and they will have seen the light, so to speak. And so you say, may you be truly happy. May you find where true happiness is and feel the goodness and the love inside of you. And so that is what disarms all hostility when they somehow heal from that pain and that trauma that made them be hurtful beings. I, I forget if I mentioned it to you in, uh, in this group, uh, maybe I did, but um, if so, here's a, a repetition. Seeing the this poster in in the halls of the UC Berkeley that has this sad boy with a, a very sad face, and it says, "A child raised in a home with domestic violence is 700 times more likely to have domestic violence in their lifetime." because it's just causes and conditions and causes and conditions and causes and conditions passed on. And when I saw that, I said, wow, who's to blame in that? We are all just products of our conditioning. And there's a line that I love from uh, Longfellow. He says, um, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find enough sorrow and suffering to disarm all hostility. If we could see for ourselves the trauma that others have gone through that made them hurt and harm others, we would understand the conditioning now and open our hearts to them. Now, in forgiving the unforgivable, you can't pretend that you are there when you're not. We might have trauma in our background and we have to heal from our trauma before we can open our heart. I was reading a, a, the book of um, Desmond Tutu today uh, in preparation for this. It's called The Book of Forgiving, 
the fourfold path for healing ourselves in the world. And Desmond Tutu was the architect of the uh, healing, uh, the, the um, Truth and Reconciliation Council that healed South Africa after apartheid. And he describes this fourfold healing process. And it's a, it's a good book worth checking out. The Book of Forgiving by Desmond Tutu. He says, we have to tell our story to someone. We can't keep it inside. We have to tell our story, if possible, if we feel safe enough to the one who's hurt us. We have to name the hurt and get in touch and process all the pain and the hurt inside. We can't bypass this. And then if in time we can come to the place where we can grant forgiveness, there is the healing. And then we, the fourth step is either renew the relationship or release the relationship. And Tutu has this line that I love. He says, forgiveness is the highest form of self-interest. I need to forgive so that my own anger and lust for revenge does not corrode my own being. So this is the architect of the reconciliation after hearing atrocities from apartheid, how people tell their story, share their hurt, and if they can get in touch at some point, find a place where they can forgive themselves and forgive others as well. So I maybe uh, want to share with you a, a bit of a, a practice for us to, to do together. So invite you to, um, to take this on as maybe just a practice in your own life. And as taking it on, you're not taking on something that you're not ready to do. So first, there is the asking forgiveness, and then there's extending forgiveness. Maybe you've caused harm to somebody in your life that weighs on you. And the first step in when we do forgiveness practices, we ask forgiveness and then we extend it. So I invite you, if you'd like to close your eyes and bring someone to mind that you may have acted unskillfully with and imagine them in front of you. And maybe get in touch with any remorse you might have and reflect on your own state of mind and perhaps the confusion or ignorance that would cause you to harm someone. And then if you can get in touch with what was going on for you, saying to them, I'm truly sorry for any harm that I've done. I'm truly sorry. And perhaps in time, you can open your heart to me. And just imagine them hearing your sincerity, and taking in your words.
and then take a breath. And having seen how we're capable of hurting others, we can now extend. So bring to mind someone that's acted unskillfully towards you and caused you to suffer in some way. And just imagine them in front of you. And just as did a moment ago, reflect on their state of mind and the confusion or the ignorance or the conditioning that would cause them to act the way they have. Not forgiving the action, but just understanding the confusion. And if you can get in touch with that compassionate understanding, if it feels right for any harm you may have caused me, knowingly or unknowingly, I forgive you. I forgive your confusion. And imagine seeing them take in your words and feel your forgiveness. Notice how that feels. And if you're not ready and you wish you could forgive, then just connect with that wholesome wish that you could forgive, because that's a start. Just be right where you are. But if you can open your heart and let go of that contraction, see if it's possible I forgive your confusion. And if you're not ready, then forgive yourself for being just right where you are. So that's the Angulimala Sutta and maybe a, a practice for us all to keep on working with, especially when our heart is bitter or holding on. So maybe we can take some time if there's any questions or comments or anything that comes up for you. We have just a few minutes left. You can 
uh, either raise your hand digitally with the reactions on the on the bottom or um, just unmute yourself I'll be able to track you Julius is that you? yeah um, something Maharaji said was that sometimes the most anger is the most love say again sometimes something that Maharaji said oh was that sometimes the most anger is the most love. And I found that to be true um, for myself that when I'm really like, I've been probably the most upset at my family members or, um, you know, my, my ex-girlfriend. And when I realized that it was just like love misdirected, um, that really, that helped me heal a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wanted to share that. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. It's usually often the people that are closest to us that we are impacted by our contracted heart because they care because, because you care so much about them and you're wanting something from them. And then the meta turns to attachment. Uh, or they've really hurt you because you cared so much about them. And if you can get in touch underneath the anger is the hurt or the, the pain, which is really coming out of the love that's underneath there. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. Anyone else? I have a question, if that's okay. Sure. Hi, Nathan. Um, one thing that I've struggled with is uh, wanting to tell people whom I feel I've hurt in the past, but mm -hmm. also having hesitations and fears about repercussions or maybe some judgment or maybe even something even deeper. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts or advice on, on that? Yeah. Um, well, one is uh, the Buddha's advice in, in one uh, discourse, uh, Majima 61, where he says, if you've caused some harm, one thing first to do is to tell somebody, a respected elder or somebody that you trust, to kind of get it off of your chest so you're not keeping it inside because that's the most mm, poisoning where we're just carrying it inside. However, I, I have, if you're carrying around those thoughts and they're, they're keeping circling in your, in your mind, you are causing enormous suffering to yourself that's going to continue until somehow you try to clean the slate. And I, it's very understandable to be that vulnerable and say, I really blew it. But the interesting thing about forgiveness is it's precisely 
your vulnerability that can touch another one's heart. Because if you're kind of saying, you know, yeah, uh, you know, I this is why I did it, and I want to explain and, and all, the heart doesn't open that way. But when you truly say, I am so sorry, and just you might imagine being on the receiving end of that, somebody who has, you know, maybe hurt you in some way, and they come to you a different person than who they were when they hurt you, and they say, this has really troubled me, and I want you to know um, I feel terrible, and I'm, I'm so, so sorry. Actually, you don't want to have them take care of you, but you just you want to show genuine remorse with your vulnerability. I'm, I want you to know how much I regret that. And then not to expect them to forgive you, because if you say, oh, can you forgive me now? Then you're asking them to be generous back. So it's not like it's it's not like you're wanting something from them. You have to really be vulnerable. Sometimes they say, in time, you know, I hope that perhaps in time you can open your heart to me. But I just want you to know how truly sorry I am. And it's that vulnerability, at least you've got a shot at at opening your heart. At, at opening their heart, I should say. And as they, uh, as uh, Serena is putting in the in the chat box in twelve steps, they say, "Make amends, unless making amends will harm yourself or others." Uh, but I've seen so often how the heart wants to forgive, because that person is holding on, probably holding on with all of that bitterness and anger as well. And you give them a chance to be generous without the expectation. So I would say go for it. And if not, if it's hard to speak in person, then you might craft a really sincere letter that says everything that you want to say. And if they can hear it, fine. And if they can't, you've at least extended yourself in that way and been vulnerable in that way. So good luck. Okay. Well, it's, uh, it's time to go. Eve, maybe why don't you, uh, do the, uh, dedication and then we'll go. You got it. You want it? Maybe I'm thinking maybe we should do a spoken dedication tonight since it's 9.02. Okay. All right. Good idea. So with our coming together, just feeling whatever is in your heart right now and just hold it with kindness. And um, may our coming here together be of benefit to ourselves and everyone we know and ripple out and be of benefit to all beings everywhere. May all know the highest happiness and peace.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.